Uh, would you pray with me now, all right? Lord God, we ask, or maybe we say this together, Lord Jesus, and, and y'all can say this in your hearts with me, and that is we renounce the voice of the dragon and his beasts and the great harlot. And we ask, Lord God, that you would help us through the power of your spirit to hear the voice of Jesus sitting on the throne in the sanctuary of our soul. I'm asking, Lord God, that you would help us to preach in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last two weeks, you know, we've been speaking about the dragon, and last week we met the, uh, the two beasts, seven-headed dragon, the two beasts, uh, one beast from the, the sea and the beast that rises uh, from the land. I said that they were politics and religion. Hopefully you are aware that it was the beast from over the sea, the governor of the Roman uh, province of Judea, Pontius Pilate, at the request uh, of the beast from the land, Eretz, the land of Israel, the religious leaders of the Jews, it was the beast from the land and the beast from the sea uh, that colluded under the direction of the dragon who, who in, inspired uh, the crowd to chant, crucify, crucify, crucify. As the pastors and the priests mocked, a Roman soldier took a spear and thrust it into the side of the Lamb of God. Blood and water gushed out, confirming that he was dead and fulfilling the ancient prophecy of Zechariah that they would look upon the one whom they had pierced. Now the last verse of Revelation chapter 12. And the dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and a blasphemous... Uh, names, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority, Akusia, to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority uh, for 42 months. Uh, that's the time of trouble in the book of Daniel. Uh, it's also time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was given to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, or more literally, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants, that would kind of be us, right, and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. This is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. 
for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, we, we started preaching all this last week, and so we, we, you know a little bit of this, but he just said its number is 666, the number of a man. More literally, he says, it's the number of man. Hopefully you remember that man is created on the sixth day and finished by the seventh. Jesus was crucified on the sixth day of creation, the sixth day of the week, at the sixth hour, just before the start of the seventh day. And he cried, it is finished and delivered up his spirit, that spirit that now romances the human heart. Well, 666 is the number of man, the number of fallen humanity. As we talked about last week, it's also the number of Emperor Nero. You remember we said that in that day, in John's day, it was a common practice to assign a number to every um, letter in the alphabet and then add up the numbers in a name in order to get a sum that was then designated uh, for the person's name. You might use the number then as a code for the name, particularly if you were being persecuted by the person and, and the government that carried that name. And we know that the church was being persecuted in Asia Minor. We read that at the start of the, the, the Revelation. In fact, Asia Minor, where the seven churches are located, was like a hotbed for the cult of emperor worship. The Jews were exempt from the requirement, for Judaism was a recognized religion. Most early Christians, even Gentile, even Gentile Christians, self-identified as Jews because they had been grafted into the great family tree by the blood of, blood of Christ. However, if the folks in the local synagogue disliked the followers of Jesus, they had only to say, these Christians are not Jews. And then those believers would be handed over to the Roman concilia, the Roman body that enforced the cult of the emperor. We know that some believers were killed. Many were forced out of the trade guilds and turned into refugees. They could not buy or sell because they refused the mark of the beast. Nero was the fifth emperor of Rome, and he died by a self-inflicted head wound, a, a sword or a knife. He took it to his own throat. Upon his death, the Roman Empire fell into a period of confusion, and many thought that the Roman beast was dead until Vespasian came to, to power. The empire revived. He destroyed Jerusalem, and people all over the known earth would, would comment, who can stand against it? Who can fight it? The beast, the empire. Well, no matter who or what you think the beast is, one thing is clear. It seems almost impossible to kill. You kill it in one form, and it will just come back in another. The seven heads are seven kings or emperors. In chapter seven, we'll, 17, we'll learn that the seven heads are also seven mountains or hills. Rome is the city built on seven hills. The beast also has ten horns, and we'll discover that the ten horns are ten kings still yet uh, to come. So there have been all sorts of ideas as to who or what those ten horns symbolize, and, and no one seems to know. Perhaps the ten is figurative and tells us to just keep counting, keep counting using all, all ten fingers. Well, the beast is at least Rome, and at least many kings and kingdoms still to come. It's also many kings and kingdoms that have come and gone and seem to keep coming back. What John sees in the Revelation, Daniel saw 500 years before in Babylon. That's why it's important to read your Bible so you recognize this stuff. Daniel 7, Daniel sees four beasts rising out of the sea. They are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and apparently Rome. The fourth beast has ten horns, and, it, and it's defeated by the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, whom all people, all people will serve, and whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's Daniel chapter 7. The four beasts are one beast, we discover in the Revelation, and also appear, check this out, they appear as an image 
in Daniel chapter 2 in a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and Daniel has. And check this out. God even reveals that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of the image, Babylon. And he, he at one point, remember, he turns Nebuchadnezzar into a beast until, Dan, until Nebuchadnezzar realizes he's a beast and then God debeasts him. He undragons him. It's in, incredible. But anyway, the head is Babylon, the torso is Persia, the loins appear to be Greece, and the legs and ten toes appear to be Rome. And then a great stone uh, they both see this great stone hewn not with any human hand. It strikes the toes of the image, breaking it into pieces, and then it grows into a kingdom, a kingdom that eventually fills the entire earth and will never, ever fade away. Well, the lamb has conquered, for the stone has struck the image. The Son of Man has cried out. It is finished. And he did it just when Daniel prophesied that he would. Christ is conquered. And yet, in John's day, they still battled the beast. And it seems that we still battle the, the beast in, in, in our space, in our time. So where is the beast in our space and, and time? In Revelation 13, you, you, you notice that there are two beasts, the political beast and then one that looks like the lamb but talks like the dragon. For hundreds of years, among Protestants particularly, the most popular candidate for the beast was the Pope in Rome on the seven hills. Read about the Inquisitions, the Crusades, and the power exercised by by the papacy, and you'll see that the papacy became incredibly beastly. But it's not just the pope. It's the institutional church, Protestant, Roman Catholic, Orthodox. See, when politics and religion get together, some incredibly evil things seem to happen. In the 20th century, Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Empire was a great candidate for the beast. And you know, their communism was not just politics. It was also religion. It was a faith statement about the ultimate nature of reality. 20 to 30 million people were slaughtered under Stalin, not counting those that came afterwards. The church was persecuted on a level that makes Nero look like a, a real amateur. Ironically, Marx, Lenin, and Stalin were pursuing a definition of the good that they got right out of Acts chapter 2, a group of people that shares everything in common with glad and generous hearts. They saw the good, but they didn't really know the good or understand the good. And so what did they do? They just tried to take the good like a beast. Eat the baby. Most of my conservative friends are deeply concerned about that communist beast. But sometimes in their fervor, they can act a bit beastly. Joseph Stalin was a great candidate for beast. But Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich may have been the very best. And that was not just politics, it was also religion. You know, the First Reich was the Holy Roman Empire. The Second Reich was the German Empire, short-lived. But the Third Reich, they believed to be the Nazi Empire, a new humanity. Hitler was known for family values. A U.S. delegate to the Baptist World Alliance Congress in Berlin, 1934, sent back this report of what he found under Hitler's regime, and now I quote, it was a great relief to be in a country where salacious sex literature cannot be sold, where putrid motion pictures and gangster films cannot be shown. The new Germany has burned great masses of corrupting books and magazines along with its bonfires of Jewish and communistic libraries. Hitler was all about family, the German family. That's called race. Family isn't bad! Family is, is good. So what did happen? Well, Hitler saw the good, didn't really understand the good, and so what did he do? He just took the good, like a beast. Like Stalin, he was fascinated with power. 
He saw it as the ability to force one's will upon another will. And so absolute power would be to consume and subsume all other wills into your, your own will, including the will of God. 1973, historian Trevor Ravenscroft wrote a book entitled The Spear of Destiny. The spear is supposedly the lance which that Roman soldier stuck into Christ's side as he hung dead upon the cross. There are all sorts of legends surrounding the spear involving rulers like Alaric, who you remember was the first barbarian, I think, to sack Rome, and Charlemagne, the first of the Holy Roman emperors. The, the legend was that whoever possessed the spear would conquer the whole world. On March 14, 1938, Hitler annexed Austria and obtained all the relics in the Hofburg Museum. He ordered that the spear be brought to Germany. In 1944, he placed it in an underground vault. On April 30, 1945, at uh, 2.10 p.m., American forces took possession of the vault and the spear. Eighty minutes later, Hitler killed himself in a bunker in Berlin. It, it was suicide like Nero, and according to many accounts, it was a gunshot to the head, a, a head wound that, that killed him. Hitler spoke of the day he first saw the spear in that museum in Austria. I stood there quietly gazing upon it for several minutes, quite oblivious to the scene around me. It seemed to carry some hidden inner meaning which evaded me, a meaning which I felt inwardly, uh, which, I, which I inwardly knew yet could not bring to consciousness. I felt as though I myself had held it before in some earlier century of history, that I myself had once claimed it as my talisman of power and held the destiny of the world in my hands. Creepy, huh? Most of my liberal friends are deeply concerned about the fascist beast, but sometimes in their fervor, I've found that they can act a bit beastly. Many say the 20th century was the most violent century in the history of the world, and I think that's probably correct. It was the century of the beast. I suspect that was largely due to Charles, Charles Darwin's study of, of beasts, but I wouldn't blame our beastliness on Darwin, because I think probably most of us don't really understand Darwin. It's common to hear people say things like this. Well, you know, life is the survival of the fittest. But competition, the survival of the fittest, clearly does not explain life. It explains the limitations of life. It does have something to do with the origin of different species, but it cannot explain species themselves. Press any biologist worthy of the name, and I think they'd have to admit that life is not the survival of the fittest, but it's something more like the sacrifice of the fittest. And for us, that is a complete mystery. I mean, we can understand why one beast would devour an, another beast, but we cannot understand why one cell within a beast would sacrifice for another cell within that very same beast. Why one member of a body would bleed for another member of that same body. Why one molecule would seemingly choose, freely choose, to serve another molecule, even sacrifice itself for another molecule. And so many have postulated some kind of life force like maybe the life force came from space or something like that. Well, we know that the life force is the will of God. And the will of God is a slaughtered lamb standing on a throne, bleeding for me and for you and for all. We also believe that God is creator. And therefore, creation is good. And yet, creation has been subjected to futility. In other words, creation is literally eating itself. It's become beastly. In Romans 8, Paul writes that one day the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious freedom, the liberty of the children of God. 
In that day the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the nursing baby will play over the den of the cobra, and they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord in Isaiah chapter 11, for the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The Lord is love. And the whole earth will be full of that knowledge, that word, that, that presence. Well, the dragon cannot comprehend love, doesn't understand love. So the dragon wants to eat the baby, wants to devour love. He calls up the beast to help him battle us, the woman, to battle us with a river of lies. The beasts are politics and Religion. I think we've been talking about the beast for months, even though I haven't used that term. You should be familiar with this picture. Right? The blue dots represent souls, and the blue dots inside the black lines represent members of a society or institution. It's what we previously called a covenant of self-interest. I suspect it's what John is, John is calling uh, the beast. Another word for it might be politics or religion, or at least human politics and human religion. It's a society bound together by the knowledge of good and evil, enforced with the power of the flesh. Knowledge. It's not a living knowledge. It's not an interior knowledge. It's knowledge that's written down and put on a stone or, or in, a, in, a, in a book. Uh, sometimes it can even like be in the air, like a custom or a ritual. Scripture calls it the law. In a place like Jerusalem, Old Jerusalem or Jericho, the law would take the form of a physical wall. Well, John's beast is a society bound together by legislation enforcing its will through coercion, the power of the flesh. In the best case scenario is people inside the wall, they want to be inside the wall because the government works for them. And so they work for the government. It's, it's a covenant of self-interest, self-preservation. It's a way to save your life. May look good on the outside, but it is a world away from the communion of self-sacrifice that is life and the very manifestation of love. In the worst case scenarios, not the best case scenario, but now in the worst case scenarios, people inside the wall are forced to remain inside the wall. And people outside the wall are threatened with death if they don't agree to surrender their will to the will of the beast, which is death. <laughs> a walking, talking death. When people feel threatened by the beast, they naturally want to battle the beast. But how do you battle the beast? What we naturally do is we form a new beast, right? If the first beast is communism, well then the second beast might be fascism or national socialism in the case of Nazi Germany. It might be capitalism, advanced by an army of marketing and propaganda and protected by the world's largest military. We might think that we kill the beast, but maybe we just become the beast in a new form. You know, Babylon... Persia, Greece, and Rome were all successive beasts trying to replace the previous beast, and yet they were all still the beast. Listen closely. The kingdom of the Lamb is not a new beast, and yet we're tempted to turn it into a beast every time we feel threatened. In America, when we feel threatened, what do we do? We write our congressmen and then complain that the church is no different than the world. Maybe we feel threatened by some democratic legislation and we think we need to go to battle. And listen closely. Maybe we should go to battle. But how do you battle the beast? Do we create a, a new beast?
Maybe we feel threatened by some Republican legislation and we think we need to go to battle. And maybe we really should go to battle. But how do you battle the beast? Do we turn the church into, into a beast? How do we battle the beast? We Americans seize power and create another beast. And then maybe beasts within beasts battling more beasts until everyone is a tired and lonely old beast. Listen closely. The kingdom of the Lamb is not a new beast. But if you think it is, you will sacrifice the Lamb for the sake of the beast. And you'll join the priests as they chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, for we have no king but Caesar. Karl Barth wrote this. The divine state is quite incompatible, not merely with the wicked totalitarian state, but with every conceivable human regime. We do not know God at all if we do not know him as the one who is absolutely opposed to our whole world, which has fallen away from him and is therefore self-estranged as the judge of our world, if we don't know him as the judge of our world, as the one whose will is that it should be totally changed and renewed. Well, the beast is politics and religion. But now you might be thinking to yourself, well, well, dang, Peter, think about it. I'd like a little politics and religion. I mean, surely that's, that's better than, than anarchy. Peter, who was it that stopped Hitler in 1949 and brought the Soviet Union to an end in 1989? Did not we kill the beast? Well, I, I think our government restrained one or two beasts. I think we may have created some new beasts and in the process maybe even become a little more beastly. And I'm certainly not saying that we should not have entered World War II. My dad fought in that war. I, I mean, I am personally really grateful uh, that, that we as a country did. I'm just saying that the United States government didn't kill the beast. You might say, well, Peter, um, God instituted, right? God instituted the governing authorities. Romans 13.1, Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, ecousia. For there is no ecousia, no authority, except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This last week, you know that Jeff Sessions famously quoted that verse in defense of President Trump's no, no tolerance immigration policy. He quoted that verse, but he forgot to mention a, a few things like the fact that St. Paul often wrote these letters from prisons where he was kept by the authorities, ecousia, and that Jesus was crucified by the authorities, ecousia, and that most of the Bible, including the Pentateuch, most of the prophets, and the New Testament was written by people on the run from the authorities, the ecousia, because they did not do what the authorities told them to do. Even the United States of America exists because we did not tell the authorities, we did not do what the authorities told us to do. We said, shove off, King George, and take your tea with you. Ephesians 6.12, Paul writes this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities. Acousia, same word, used by the same guy against the cosmic world powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It seems that Paul obeyed the authorities unless he felt compelled by a higher authority in order to, uh, to, to, to do some, something different. No matter what, he never battled people, but he always battled the authorities. Do you suppose he battled the authorities by subjecting himself to the authorities. He didn't write obey the authorities, but be subject to the authorities. Jesus battled the authorities. He certainly did not agree with the authorities, but did he subject himself to the authorities? In other words, did Jesus let the authorities nail him to a tree? 
Or did he call down a legion of angels to just kick their ass? A lot of folks seem to think he messed up the first time, so he needs to come back and conquer. They think he still needs to kick some ass because it is not finished. In Colossians 2.15, Paul writes this, that on the cross God disarmed the rulers and authorities, akousia, and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in Christ Jesus. That means that on the cross, God in Christ Jesus kicked their ass. And yet in Romans, Paul wrote that God instituted the authorities. Do you suppose that he wanted us to watch him kick their ass? God instituted the authorities, writes Paul in Romans. God triumphed over them in Jesus, writes Paul in Colossians. And, and now we battle them, writes Paul in Ephesians. How do you put that all together? Well, this thought helps me. 1950, the great theologian Henrik Burkhoff wrote a, a groundbreaking book titled Christ and the Powers or Christ and the Authorities, the Acousia. In it, he argues that Paul saw the rulers and the authorities as structures of earthly human existence, as social facts or ideologies, psychologies, sociologies, uh, nations, governments, institutions, even religions. These rulers and authorities were created by God like humanity, but they had fallen and could become inhabited by evil. So we battle against the authorities inhabited by evil, like Stalin and Hitler. And yet, I think maybe we battle against them all. Perhaps even the ones not so quite saturated with evil, like the city and county of Denver, or your homeowners association, or the 501c3 nonprofit entity that we like to call the church, our church. I mean, maybe we're supposed to battle the authorities the way a child battles to grow up and become an adult. You see, that would mean that God instituted the authorities for a time, but not to rule over us for all eternity. The authorities are institutions governed by law in the power of the flesh. In Galatians 3.19, Paul writes this. What's the purpose of the law? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, that's Jesus, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels, that should sound familiar, by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. What does a mediator do? Mediator do? A mediator works to take several wills and turn them into one will, but God is one will. And if we all had the will of God sitting on the throne in the sanctuaries of our souls, well, we would be one. And each of our wills would be free, for God is free. What I'm saying is we would not be bound by law, but we would be united in love. In Ephesians, after Paul writes that we battle, not against, or we battle against rulers and authority, he asks Ephesians to pray for him. And this is what he asks him to pray for, that he would have courage to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. In Ephesians 3, 6, he tells us what that mystery is, the mystery that he's longing to proclaim. The mystery is that the Gentiles, that means the others, the people on the other side of the wall, even the unbelievers, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the very same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He goes on to say that our job is to proclaim this to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Our job is to proclaim that we are truly not divided, but that Christ has made us one body in him. My body is governed by a radically different sort of government than that of Babylon or Persia or the city and county of Denver. The cells in my body don't look like that, but something more like this. My body isn't dead, and it's not many individual lives, it's this thing is one life. 
Each member feels its neighbor's pain, and all members together feel harmony as absolute joy. My body is not governed by a list of laws. I've never had to argue or force my members into submission, and if I did, you'd all say, he's sick, and you'd have compassion on me. But, but I'm healthy, and so I don't have to do that. Every member is free, even though entirely subject to me, the, the head. The cells in my body don't look like this. but something more like this. You could say that each member has trust, the biblical word for that is faith, that each member has faith in the judgment of my head. And each member is fed by blood pumped from my heart. Each member constantly surrenders blood and receives blood. Each member constantly surrenders its life and then finds life. Each member is happy. <laughs> well. Galatians 3, Paul continues talking about life under the law. L listen very closely. Before faith came, or trust came, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, paedagogos. It means like child conductor. That's how Young translates it, our child conductor. Until Christ came that we might be justified, made right, by faith, trust. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. But you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I think Paul is saying that the rulers and authorities are kind of like babysitters. You know, there are relatively good babysitters and relatively bad babysitters. You hire a babysitter so that your kids don't kill each other while you're out to dinner. But you never trust the babysitter to raise your kids. Likewise, a government can keep people from killing each other. But a government cannot create in you or your neighbor a new heart, a heart that trusts the Father, a person in the very image of God. We see Christians arguing over government is a little like two parents arguing over rules for the babysitter, and that's fine. I mean, you should argue over rules for, for the babysitter. That's fine, but if those parents divorce over the rules for the babysitter, they're worse than the babysitter. They've become the beast. In America, we often get to choose our babysitter and we often don't choose well. But a Christian doesn't put faith in the babysitter. He or she puts faith in the Father who is coming back and has claimed each of them as his own. Usually we don't choose well, and most of the world cannot choose at all. And so, w w with my analogy, I don't want to diminish the fact that babysitters can be downright evil. In fact, I saw this advertisement for this movie on Netflix. Didn't watch it, but saw it. It's called The Babysitter. It's about this kid that becomes like infatuated with his babysitter, but it turns out his babysitter is like the babysitter from hell because she's planning to sacrifice him to the dragon. I mean, babysitters can be evil. Maybe it's a stupid analogy, but my point is don't trust the babysitter. Trust the heart of your father in heaven. Inspired by the dragon, the pastors and the priests of Israel colluded with the government of Rome. They convinced the children of Israel to, cramp, to chant, crucify, 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 and then they did. They nailed the heart of their father to a tree in a garden. We battle not against flesh and blood, writes Paul, but rulers and authorities. So how do we battle the rulers and authorities? How do we battle the beast? Not just in places like Iraq, like Paul Bradley was doing, but right here in the sanctuary. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul writes that our weapons aren't of the flesh, but they do have power to destroy strongholds and every proud argument. Ephesians 6, he gives us armor. And all the armor is Christ. In Revelation 13, we read about the beasts that slaughtered the lamb. And in Revelation 14, we see the lamb. Then I looked, 
And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. As we preached earlier, we are the 144,000, and we battle like the Lamb with the very blood of the Lamb flowing in our veins. He is the light of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so here are just a few suggestions, and then we'll be done, okay? Number one, we shine the light on the beasts. We know what they are, and we know what they are not, and we know that we battle them and not each other. So we should get together, and we should argue over rules for the babysitter. But never break up the marriage. In sermons, I try to avoid rules for the babysitter, for I think that I'm called to preach our Father's heart. But I would love to host discussions during the next election or even now around any political issues that you would like. Not, not so you could win an argument, but so that we would shine the light on, on the beast. So we would listen for Christ in each other. And never surrender, never surrender your thinking or your feeling. See, he, if he sits on the throne in your heart now, never surrender your thinking or your feeling to an institution like Fox News or CNN or even the institutional church. And now I'm standing here talking to you, and this is an institution. Hopefully, you can hear what I say, and hopefully you know enough of me to, to listen to me as a person, but beware of institutions. And we can argue. And we don't have to panic because the Lamb has already conquered. And nothing can be done by the beast that has not already been allowed by God our Father. When Jesus stood before Pilate and the high priest, Pilate said, Don't you know that I have power to crucify you? And Jesus said, you have no power over me except that which has been granted to you from above. Number two, Jesus is the way. And Jesus said, I only do what I see, present tense, my father doing. Check this out. John writes that the beast was, is not, and is to come. This may fry your brain, but in some utterly profound way, the beast has no power right now. Perhaps it even has no substance right now. The beast derives its power from fears in your past and fears in your future. It makes you fear death and form strategies to save your life. So you wouldn't lose your life. It uses death as, as like a trump card. And I didn't mean that politically. I mean it uses death as, as a trump card. But you see the resurrection, it utterly transforms the meaning of death. But can you imagine how the beast tempted, tempted Jesus on that Friday? Jesus, if you do this, if you refuse to fight, you will die. And not only will you die, most all of your disciples will suffer horrifically and die. And not only your disciples, but all Jerusalem will be destroyed. That which took thousands of years to build, the labor of a, of a thousand years of the people of God destroyed. But Jesus did not navigate with strategies and maps. He walked in the now with his Father. That's the presence of the kingdom. And so he said to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. That I, there's a strategy, that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Number three, Jesus is the truth. He sits on a throne in the temple of your heart, and you know him not as just a law in a book, but a voice in your soul. That's called honesty. Jesus said to Pilate, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, my voice. You might have noticed that the beast from the land looks like the, the lamb, but it talks like the dragon. You may have noticed that it's also allowed to deceive people that dwell on the earth with signs. On the day that Jesus conquers the beast, he does no signs. He wants you to hear the truth and love the truth apart from the signs. Jesus is the truth. 
and his name means God is salvation. The beast may look like a lamb and do all sorts of amazing signs, but he will not preach God is salvation. He'll preach, I am salvation, and your choices and your deeds are salvation, and together we are salvation. We're life. Don't lose your life. Number four, Jesus is the life. And Jesus doesn't save his life. He offers it for all. What the beast takes, he gives, freely gives. He forgives. Life is literally a river of constant forgiveness. It's a river of blood. The life is in the blood. We are his body, and we bleed his blood. It is the ultimate weapon against the beast. It destroys the accuser and it tames the beast. The beast is allowed to conquer the saints for that is how the saints conquer the beast and are made in the image of their father. Conquering in both cases, writes commentator Eugene Boring, conquering in both cases, that of the Christ and that of Christians means no more or less than dying. You know we already have a wall at the Mexican border, right? I used to see it every few months when we'd go build houses in the Tijuana dump. It's a wall of cement and steel, regulations and customs, legislation and law. What's been happening at the southern border has been an absolute tragedy for as long as I can remember. But as long as we have two separate governments, there will be some sort of wall. And we can and we should argue about what it's made of and how big it should be. But if you really feel called to tear down the wall, you don't need the backing of the beast, Mexican or American. All you need is the blood of the lamb. Find a Mexican immigrant and love him and his wife and his, and his kids the way you love yourself because you know they are yourself. They're your body. Even better, book a flight to El Salvador. If you feel called, now I said if you feel called because I don't think we're called to, Jesus wasn't called every day. Every day was not Good Friday, and yet in another way it was. So, but anyway, if you feel called, book a flight to El Salvador. Find some teenage boys filled with fear that have pledged themselves to the beast MS-13. If they attempt to take your life, forgive your life. Bleed for them. Loving not even your own life, loving not your own life, even unto death. And if you wonder what good will that do, well, that is the good. And by the way, that is how we conquer the beast. The blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, loving not our lives even unto death. It was precisely when the beast from the land conspired with the beast from the sea under the influence of the dragon. It was precisely when they took the life of the lamb on the tree that he gave his life on the very same tree and conquered all things. It was precisely when the Roman soldier thrust that spear into our Lord's side that the beast was conquered. The beast was conquered and could no longer conquer. It was then that the Roman soldier dropped to his knees and said, surely this was the Son of God. He didn't understand the pointy end of the spear. It was then, it was then that he looked on the one whom he had pierced. It was then that Jerusalem began mourning for him and begging with pleas for mercy. It was then that the fountain was opened on Mount Zion. It was then that the river of life began to flow half to the western sea and half to the eastern sea, all as prophesied by Zechariah hundreds of years before. It was then that the great stone hewn not by any human hand struck the image of the beast from Daniel's vision and the kingdoms of this world began to crumble and the kingdom of our God and of his Christ began to fill all the empty things with the very fullness of God. Don't get sidetracked by this world of politics and religion. You already know how to conquer the dragon 
and battle the beast. For on the night that the lamb was betrayed, the beginning of that day, he took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the covenant. Not a covenant of self-interest, a covenant of love. This is the covenant. This cup is my blood. My blood is the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And so John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, being pursued by the beast from Rome and hated I would imagine by the beast from the land, his own people, his city of Jerusalem about to be destroyed, and God gives him a vision. And he looks to the throne and he sees the lamb. That was the lamb that he saw nailed to this tree when he stood at the base of the tree. He sees the lamb and he sees 144,000 redeemed from the earth. That means these people had been harvested. They had died in arenas, and they had been persecuted and tortured, and many of them had been his friends. And he sees them on the throne singing and dancing. Do you see that how that totally undoes the power of the beasts? They're liars, and they keep us in a lifetime of bondage through the fear of death. And so by way of benediction, believe the gospel. And, 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 and then if you say, well, how do I know the gospel when I hear it? Believe the one who has freely, freely chosen to hang on a cross. For that one has chosen truth over the beasts. Over the beasts of Rome, politics, over the beast of Israel, religion, and over the great harlot, which is an economy of consumption. Chosen truth over politics, religion, and business. And in the case of Christ, he has not only chosen truth, he is truth. And you've been to this table, which means that truth is sitting on a throne in the sanctuary of your heart. I'm saying he speaks directly to you. You don't need the babysitter. So this is what I do, and this is my routine in the morning. I make a big thing of latte because it helps everything work better in my body. So that's, that's be totally beside the point. That's what my wife edits out of all the sermons. But anyway, I make a latte, and I drink it. I sit down, and I watch the news, and this is what I'll do. I'll switch between... CNN and Fox News, which is like going from one world to another world. And then after a while, I'll just shut off the TV and I'll just sit in silence with Jesus. I'm saying he speaks to you. You don't need the beast. Just listen to the voice of the Father in your heart when you surrender yourself in prayer. In Jesus' name. Believe the gospel, and we better end or I'll start preaching this, the next sermon.